The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. So we remain standing. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, would you give us your rest today? Would you reveal to us the Father? May we find ourselves in you. Would you teach us, shape us, encourage, and rebuke us? Soften our hearts that we might find our rest in you. For the glory of your name, amen. Please be seated. So my Toyota has the most irritating seatbelt warning chime on the planet. Not only does it refuse to cut off until you actually put your seatbelt on, it dings faster and faster and faster the longer you wait. I've tried to ignore it on trips across the neighborhood, but I have never succeeded for more than 20 seconds. I can't handle it. Our world is filled with warnings, filled with warnings. Our cars warn us to put our seatbelts on, that we're drifting into the next lane or that there's a car in our blind spot. Even medicine meant to cure is given to us with warnings, lots of warnings. My favorite are the rapid-fire disclaimers at the end of every television commercial for a prescription drug. You know exactly what I'm talking about. May cause kidney failure. Known to increase risk of heart attacks in males over 15. Do not take if pregnant. Some patients have developed gout and lost limbs after taking this medication. Our world is filled with warnings. So much so that we see and hear them every day, and they barely register. But sometimes we hear a warning that we need to heed. Sometimes wisdom, experience, and caution combine in a word of warning that makes us stand at attention, consider our actions, and then ultimately change course. Our passage this morning, it begins with a warning such as this. And that warning is connected to a promise that leads to a meditation on the power of God's Word. And those are going to be our three topics this morning. A warning, a promise, and a meditation on God's Word. We'll find these as we survey Hebrews 3 and 4. So I hope you'll turn there with me. It's on page 1002 in those red Bibles. We've already seen in chapters 1 and 2 how the author of Hebrews likes to work. He takes the Old Testament rereads it in light of the person of Jesus Christ, and he draws out applications for the church. And this new section that we're in this morning is no different. Here, we are given a meditation on Psalm 95. 
It's a psalm in which King David gives warning to his contemporaries by reflecting on God's judgment of the generation that rebelled against him in the wilderness. So that means that this part of Hebrews is a reflection on a psalm which is itself a meditation on the book of Numbers. And this can get a little confusing. Why doesn't the author just go straight to what he wants to say? Hebrews would be so much simpler if he weren't so busy quoting the Old Testament. Well, he takes the approach that he does for a very important reason that comes out in verse 7, which begins, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... The author is not merely citing ancient sources to back up his argument like a grad student cramming in unnecessary footnotes. What he's doing is repeating the very words of God, words that have power and relevance and speak clearly across every generation into every conceivable context. Yes, Psalm 95 was written by King David, and it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. In these words, not only were David's contemporaries and the first century recipients of this letter, Hebrews, given a warning, but so are we today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. All of that comes from Psalm 95. The author of Hebrews then continues in his own words, saying, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do not harden your hearts. The description's metaphorical, the disease is real. Even we, who've heard the good news of Jesus Christ, trusted in him for our salvation, even we are vulnerable to the hardening of our hearts and ultimately the loss of our faith. The Greek word for hardening here in the passage, it gives us the root for our word sclerosis. Sclerosis is defined as the pathological hardening of tissue, especially from overgrowth of fibrous tissue. It's a graphic image. A heart slowly encased in layer after layer of constrictive tissue that cuts off blood flow and eventually renders it useless. That's the picture. But how does this happen? How can a heart filled with faith one day grow harder and harder and harder over time? Well, our text gives us a few ideas, especially when we remember that it's a reflection on Psalm 95. The first layer, the first hard layer of fibrous tissue that wraps itself around our hearts is the layer of ingratitude. Ingratitude. Now, most of Psalm 95 is a song of praise. We sing it during morning prayer. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout for joy to the rock of our salvation. 
The first half of the psalm is a reminder to praise God for His work of salvation, to remember all that He's done for us. The stern word of warning cited in Hebrews only comes after all of this, but the two halves are connected. The people in the wilderness who rebelled against God and about whom David writes in Psalm 95, they did so after being dramatically rescued from slavery in Egypt. Do you know when the hearts of God's people began to harden? It was the moment they stopped giving him thanks. It's Thanksgiving week. It's a timely message. We all know that giving thanks is a discipline. We know this because we have to teach our children to say thank you. Gratitude doesn't come naturally to human beings. We have this way of assuming that all of the best stuff in life is meant for us and we are therefore entitled to it. Hearts start hardening when they're wrapped with ingratitude. But that's just the first layer. After ingratitude comes discontent, another fibrous tissue constricting our hearts. So the generation that rebelled against God in the wilderness, they complained a lot about food. Food. They told God that the food in Egypt was better than the manna that he was giving them in the desert. As far as they were concerned, the food that they ate after being forced into back-breaking labor while their babies were being killed was better than the food of angels, and they wanted to go back to Egypt. That's insane. You can't make this up. And I think we all know that it's not made up because we each recognize that we're actually capable of doing the same thing. When you stop giving thanks for what you've been given, you become discontent with what you have. I'm going to say that again. When you stop giving thanks for what you've been given, you become discontent with what you have. And when you become discontent with what you have, you start complaining. It doesn't matter at that point if your complaint is rational or not. Discontent, it makes us irrational. It even has a way of rewriting our memories and making us forget like the Hebrews. And this opens us up to deception. Deception is the next layer of fibrous tissue that cuts off circulation and hardens our hearts. Ingratitude, discontent, deception. So when you're unhappy and someone says that they can make you happy, you believe them if only because you really just want to be happy. You allow yourself to imagine that something new, something different, something else can fill that empty space inside. And so you become vulnerable to whatever's on offer. You venture off course. You take a little detour. You experiment. In the words of verse 12, you fall away from the living God. The author of Hebrews warns us not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives us into thinking that something other than God will make us happy. It draws us away, and it makes us happy for a moment, but then it disappoints us forever. 
after you've been deceived and disappointed a few times, your heart gets harder and harder, heavier and heavier, dragging you down, pulling you away from the God who made you. Ingratitude gives birth to discontent, which makes us vulnerable to deception, leading to disappointment. All of which wraps our hearts in hard tissue, drawing us away from God. And that's why the author repeats his warning from Psalm 95 again in verse 15. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That word today is repeated five times throughout this passage, always with a sense of urgency. We must attend to this warning today. Not tomorrow, not next week, not when we feel like we're ready to address the whole God thing in our lives. Amidst all the noise of needless warnings in the world around us, this is the one warning we really need to heed today. To keep our hearts tender toward God, to hold our original confidence firm to the end, as we're told in verse 14. Do not harden your hearts. It's a warning issued daily to those who would be faithful because our hearts are always vulnerable. You cannot simply coast in the Christian life. It is not a downhill ride. Stop pedaling and you eventually roll backwards, gaining speed until you crash. But why does it matter? Why the urgent warning because of the promise that's at stake. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. The promise that God gives his people is that they will share his rest. Now, for some of us, that sounds amazing. For others, that sounds kind of boring. What is this rest? And why is this promise worth grabbing hold of each and every day? Well, the author takes us all the way back to the creation of the world in order to explain In verse 4 of chapter 4, he reminds us that God rested on the seventh day of creation. He made the day holy because on it he stopped to enjoy the perfection of what he had made, and he invited us to join him. This This was the purpose of creation, perfect rest in the presence of God. Now, we know from Genesis 1 and 2 that human beings were commanded to steward creation, to take the beauties of the garden and to extend them round the full circumference of the globe. You can't do that while you're sitting on your hands. Rest doesn't mean doing nothing. It means, at least in part, doing what you were created to do hand in hand with the one who created you. And so we come to our gospel reading from Matthew 11 and Jesus' invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy 
and my burden light. Jesus promises release from hard labor, but not relief from good work, hence the yoke. God's rest and good work go together. What Jesus gives us is himself as co-laborer. The invitation to share the rest of God is the invitation to life as it was meant to be in God's good creation, full, abundant, joyous, productive, free from exhaustion, pain, and restless striving. Rest isn't the end of activity. It's the advent of true peace and the beginning of real life with God. So no wonder the author of Hebrews says over and over, quoting Psalm 95, today, don't harden your hearts. The gospel invitation is given every day. It's echoing around this beautiful room as I speak. The invitation is to trust in Jesus, to turn away from sin, to receive the gift of forgiveness, and thereby to enter the rest of God, eternal life, as it was always meant to be. Now, interestingly, Jesus isn't mentioned in these, these verses from Hebrews 3 and 4. Moses, David, and Joshua, however, are all mentioned by name. And what they share in common is the fact that none of them was able to give God's people the rest that they really needed. Though each was a hero of the faith, it was beyond them. Only Jesus can give us rest. And as you know, that rest does not come fully here and now. Yes, we experience a piece of it as we rest in trust, kind of like a, a small child at a football game who falls asleep in the arms of her father in spite of the chaos around her. But our rest will only be complete when Jesus returns to renew creation and to reign over all things. For that reason, each day, we must choose to trust, leaning toward the future in hope and expectation. Hence the warning in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The instruction to fear, it's not an invitation to constant insecurity. It's a warning to take care, to be disciplined, to stay alert and attentive. This is the kind of fear that leads mountain climbers to check their gear before an expedition and skydivers to inspect their parachutes before takeoff. It is the sensible caution of the wise, not the frantic anxiety of the foolish. This section of Hebrews, it ends with one last reminder and a concluding reflection in verses 11 and following. And here we move from the warning and the promise to a timeless meditation on the power of God's word. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sword of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight 
but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. What word of God is the author referring to? Is this just a general reference to Scripture? a specific reference to Psalm 95, to the covenant promises, or something, something else? Well, for starters, I think the author is referring to the word of warning and the implicit promise of Psalm 95. That warning and promise, however, they're tied into the creation account of Genesis and the history of the book of Numbers. The word of God is the whole of his revelation as it unfolds throughout the scriptures and is repeated to every, every generation. It's what is written in our Bibles and importantly, it is what has been spoken here today. And these scriptures, they do far more than tell us what to do and tell us what is true. They actually have power to cut through that fibrous tissue that binds our hearts, then to dissect our souls, to reveal our thoughts and expose our motives. Scripture reveals who we are both to God and to ourselves. It's not static. It's active. We read it, but it reads us. We work hard to understand it even as it holds up a mirror for us to understand ourselves. This is what Scripture does. Back in verse 7, the author introduced Psalm 95 by saying, as the Holy Spirit says. The verb is present. It's present and it's still present. Meaning that in these ancient words written by David, God was speaking not just in the first century in the context of a letter to a specific group of people. He's speaking to us today. And that, of course, is in some ways the point of the whole passage as it repeats time and time again. Today, 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 do not harden your hearts. God is warning us through his word today to trust his promises and to guard our hearts that we might enter his rest. So I've been a student of scripture my whole life. I spent a long time in graduate school professionally studying scripture. It doesn't pay very well. In some ways, it would be fair to say that the entirety of my vocation can be explained as an effort to plant God's word in your hearts so that, so that you will find your hearts filled in and by God's word. After decades of study, I can tell you that scripture is more interesting more exciting, more insightful, and more powerful in my life today than ever before. And I expect that I will be able to say that same thing until the day I die. That is the power of the living, active Word of God. If you want a soft and supple heart, not wrapped up in the fibrous tissue of ingratitude, discontent, and deception, one that is tender to God and open to his world, then I want to encourage you, as the author to, Hebrew do, does, to the Hebrews does, steep yourself in Scripture. 
Soak in it. Read it, but let it read you. Let it open your eyes to who you are, to the world that we inhabit, and to the God who loves us. And don't wait for tomorrow. As the author of Hebrews urges us, seek him today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you cut through the tissues that surround our hearts by the power of your word? Would you soften our hearts that we might receive your love, that we might experience your rest, that we might be people who live in hope and expectation of eternal rest with you? May we not forsake the promise by failing to heed the warning. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.